You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I think one of the most impressive things about the human soul is its capacity to search for hope. We keep thinking that the next star on the horizon is going to be the one that we're waiting for, the one that will save us from another year of searching, the one that will allow our hearts to finally rest because at last we've found something we can adore. I mean, finding a place to bring our adoration, to bring our worship is at the core of most of our best searches, isn't it? And we are designed, we're designed to bow our knees before God until we found our God here on earth, God with us. Our lives will never seem right. He is the only one who can meet the hopes and fears of all the years. And so today, we're going to learn from the wise men and their journey as they chase the star of hope. And as we come to this text, let's pray together. Lord, we are people who search. We have the capacity for it. Sometimes our searches are in vain. Sometimes we don't search for the right things. But Lord, ultimately, our best searches are looking for you. So Lord, we pray that we'd find you and that you would find us in your son's name. Amen. Well, Matthew begins his gospel in chapter 1 by talking about uh, the people who have been on a journey, really, searching for a very, very long time. And he does this by kind of listing the genealogies of Jesus, all, all the people that kind of lead up to Jesus, uh, the generations before. And in that list is included Abraham, who was the one who left his home in, in Ur and came to the promised land. The list includes the descendants of Abraham who journeyed into Egypt under the leadership of Jacob. And then the descendants of Jacob who followed Moses into the wilderness and eventually back to the promised land. And then in time, the Israelites were pulled from the land and into exile in Babylon, in modern day uh, Iran, in um, Iraq. And after Babylon fell to Persia, the Jews journeyed back again to the promised land. There's a lot of wandering around in the Old Testament. And for Matthew, it is really the first chapter of the gospel, the wandering around of those people, the people that lead up to Jesus. When we get to chapter 2 of Matthew, what do we find? We find another journey. We find the journey of some wise men, some Gentile wise men on a great search. And I think by including the story of these wise men in his own story, Matthew has made it clear that searching for something is a universal passion for us people. It's not just a Jewish, not just Jews who search on a journey. Uh, he could have just as well listed uh, our names in there and our stories of life because uh, we are on a journey too. We know about wandering, don't we? There's something buried deep in us that will never rest content with how things are. Not when they might be better. We take incredible chances. We venture out into the unknown future at time, all in the hope that we might find what we're looking for, even if we don't always know what it is. Sometimes we make mistakes on that journey along the way, and we realize that what we have found is not what we wanted. We may then search for a way to go back or a search for another alternative ahead. Just don't give up, we tell ourselves. Just don't settle for a life that is less than it can be. And so it has always been. 
And that, I think, is what Matthew is trying to say at the beginning of, his, of the story of Jesus, that humans have always been searching and have been desperate for any help they can find along the way. So let's see what we learn and receive from this journey of the wise men as we read this text from Matthew chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For he observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. They opened their treasure chests. They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their country by another road. Well, let's look at this, this uh, story of the wise men, this journey. We know a couple things. We know that when Jesus was born, there was a great deal of anticipation, of expectation for a new king who would kind of put the world right again. And this kind of just didn't come from the Jews, although it certainly was there. The Jewish historian Josephus talks about that, that these expectations were running particularly high at this time in Jewish life. But it was also in the Roman Empire, too. Roman historians wrote about a common belief that someone would currently be being born at that time who would gather the nations into a universal empire. And the, the philosopher Seneca wrote about it, about people coming to Athens to, to make sacrifices to the memory of Plato in hopes that a new philosopher king would emerge from there. And the classic poet Virgil described a great golden era that this new king would bring for all the earth. So Jews, Romans, Greeks, and writers from Asia and Persia all recorded this same great hope that somehow, somewhere, a new savior king would be born, if only he could be found. And among those searching were for this new king were these wise men. We don't really know that much about them, but they were probably from Persia, modern-day Iraq and Iran, and they probably belonged to a class of philosopher kings called the Magi. They were highly educated, skilled in astronomy. They were men who foretold events. They interpreted dreams. And they studied the stars. They would watch the constant patterns of the stars night after night. The North Star always in the same place. The other stars would always follow the same rotation night after night, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Nothing changed. 
except one day it did. A new star arose, and that was incredible to these astronomers. It meant that God broke into his world uh, in his own creation, and he sent a new star. Also, these, these men, if they were from Persia, were probably familiar with the Jewish scriptures because uh, the Jews had spent time in that area after Nebuchadnezzar had carried them into captivity there. Scriptures like Isaiah 60, which was read earlier, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shall rise among you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so they set out on this journey to pay tribute to this new king that the star had indicated was coming. Now, it's not hard for us to believe because of this history that we just heard that they that this happened. It's not hard to believe because we're looking for the same thing. We've chased a lot of stars in our day, and so we know the longing. We know the motivation for this kind of search. And so they set out. And this journey, if, if they came from where we thought they came from, is about 800 miles long. That's a long journey on a camel, I'm sure. It's a long way. And they journey to Jerusalem. That's where the star leads. And they, they know that Jerusalem is the center of Jewish life. And in Ezra 6, we learn that the, uh, we see a written order by King Cyrus of Persia, that same area, who gave permission and funds for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Now that temple had since been destroyed and another grander one had just been built by Herod. Uh, that was pretty amazing. But they knew, these Persians knew, these wise men knew that Jerusalem was the center. And so they set out for Jerusalem to find this newborn king. So they arrive. And they cause quite a stir. They start asking around, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising, and we've come to pay him homage. Isn't it interesting that the first announcement at the center of Jewish life in Jerusalem about this newborn king comes from non-Jewish foreigners? It kind of seems like God is choosing to make sure that everyone in the center knew that this Savior was not just for Israel, it was for the whole world, not just the Jews. So anyway, they arrive, they cause this stir. Herod hears about the wise men and their news and their, the questions they're asking, and he was afraid. And all of Jerusalem was afraid with him as well. And you have to kind of understand why they were afraid. This Herod guy has, is great and he's dark. He's called Herod the Great, and in many ways he was pretty amazing. He was a builder, I mean an unmatched builder. He built entire cities during his life and his reign. He rebuilt Jerusalem. He built the Temple Mount. He built, rebuilt the temple in, in incredible grandeur, one of the most amazing structures of the time. But Herod had this very dark side. He was a very fearful man. He was an insanely suspicious man. And if he suspected anyone at all of being a rival to him, he would just kill him. Nobody was safe, not even his family. He murdered his wife Miriam and her mother, Alexandra. He killed three of his sons. Augustus, uh, the Roman emperor, said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. I think he was right. He gave the orders that a collection of the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem should be arrested and at the moment he died, when Herod died, they should be killed. Because he knew, he was well aware that no one would mourn his death, 
So he was determined that some tears would be shed when he died. That's how dark Herod was. And so these wise men arrive in Jerusalem with their message on their journey. And Herod was afraid. And believe me, if Herod was afraid, all of Jerusalem was afraid too. And so Herod called together the chief priests and the scribes, and he asked them where this king was to be born. And the priests and scribes brought the scriptures from Micah chapter 5 to Herod. And the prophecy said, Bethlehem. So Herod called for the wise men and sent them to Bethlehem, asking them to let him know where the Messiah was so he could come and worship him too. I'm not sure I really believe that. And so the wise men do leave for Bethlehem. But I think something really odd happens here. I'm not sure why, but no one goes with them. Doesn't that seem odd to you? They start heading out of town for this five-mile trip. It's just twice around Green Lake, you know, two lattes, you know. It's not a long way. They can be back by dinner, take the walk, come back. But nobody goes with them. Herod wants to come along later with some soldiers. But what about the priests and scribes? What about other people in Jerusalem? Because all of Jerusalem have heard about it. They don't go the five miles. The priests, the scribes, the religious leaders, the civil leaders of Jerusalem, they were at the priests in the temple at the center of it all. Why didn't they go to see Christ? Well, I think maybe they're afraid of uh, Herod. That's definitely a strong possibility. Or maybe they're so wrapped up in the temple rituals that they couldn't see the bigger story that was unfolding. That's possible. Or were they even open to hearing the good news of Christ's birth from Gentile foreigners? Maybe not. But for whatever reason, they don't go. But the wise men do go to Bethlehem, and they see the newborn king. And it's not enough to see the star rising in the sky and to know the king is on the way. They have taken this journey, and they couldn't just know about it or hear about it. They needed to go, and they needed to see for themselves. And so they see. They really see him. And they knelt down, and they gave him their adoration, and they worshipped him. And they gave him gifts. Some say these gifts are symbolic. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for one who is to die. They're certainly valuable gifts, and they would fund the Holy Family's trip in years in Egypt when they're fleeing from Herod and his wrath. The gifts were great, but they were just symbols, I think, of what was happening in the life of the wise men. A great journey. Chasing a star, kneeling and worshiping the king of the universe, the savior. They'd arrived, they'd knelt, and they'd found the hope of their life. That's the story. So what do we learn from it? What do we learn from this journey of the wise men? Well, the first thing I think that we need to be aware of is that we chase a lot of stars in our day, don't we? For many people, a lot of these searches have turned out to be just another rotation around the same old pattern of hope, disillusionment, more hope, more disillusionment. Nothing changed in their lives. And after a while, they started to wonder if they had used up too much of life searching. Or they wonder if they are past the point of setting out on a new journey. Maybe it's just time to settle for life the way it is. But then Christmas comes around. With the, the deep longings we have at Christmas, like the wise men from the East, we still find ourselves asking, where is he? Where is the Savior? 
The second thing I think we need to be aware of is that it's not enough for us just to hear that he was born. Like the wise men, we have to see him. Of course, by now you've heard the Savior's born, but so had Herod and all of Jerusalem. And they didn't go see him. They missed the miracle. Since ancient days, people all over the world have been hearing about the birth of a Savior, but so many have never come to see that their Savior is the child Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Our longings will not be satisfied by hearing the Christmas story again this year. It's not enough just to hear. We have not introduced any new characters this year into the Christmas story. You know the story. And our longings call us to join the journey to Bethlehem, don't they? To bend our knee and to worship the child who is our Savior. You cannot adore what you have not found. You need to make the journey. This is where worship helps us. To be here on Sundays. To light candles on Christmas Eve. To read scripture. To pray. To be in community. All this helps us to wake up to the greatest hope we have. And that hope is a person, Jesus, our Savior and our King. And so we worship him. The third thing I think we learn from these, uh, wise men, this wise men's journey is that um, our lives are changed by this journey. An amazing thing happens when we see and worship our Savior. We are found by the very one we are searching for. He's the one who has taken the greatest journey. He has found us by becoming one of us. The search for the Savior is over. And in the arrival of Jesus, it is as if the arms of God are reaching out to us. And all we have to do to receive his love is to reach out to embrace the birth of our only hope. And that hope will grow into our strong salvation because this child became a man. And that man walked through our lives. He felt the hunger of our lives and witnessed the lousy things we've settled for in our lives as well. And yet he proclaimed another way, and he called it the kingdom of God. And that changes everything. The destination of our journey will now always be the same. It will be Jesus. And now our journey becomes one of devoting ourselves to the answers that he gave us. Have we truly loved God with our whole heart, all of our strength, all of our mind? Have we loved our neighbors as ourselves? Have we loved even our enemies? Have we forgiven as we have been forgiven? Last week I picked up a a feel-good Christmas book uh, called The Other Wise Man by Henry Van Dyke. I don't know if you've read it before. It's a little contrived, I have to admit that, but it has a good lesson in it. So I'd like to share show you just the highlights of that uh, book with you. In this book, there's a fourth wise man. Traditionally, you think of three as wise men. We really don't know how many there were. But in this book, there's a fourth wise man named Artaban, who brings with him three extraordinary jewels to give to the newborn king. Except he has this recurring problem. He always misses seeing Jesus. But he's still on this quest. First of all, he's recruiting more magi. He wants more of them to come with him. But none of them really want to go. They're too old or they, they, they're running out of search, searches. They don't, they don't have time to do this. And so he, he's racing to the rendezvous point so he can join the other wise men to go on this, this journey to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem. 
But along the way, he sees this man who is sick in the middle of the road, and he's going to die without his help. And so he helps him, and he spends one of his jewels to get him cared for. And he races to the rendezvous point, and they're gone. So he equips himself with some camels, gets ready for this long journey, and he makes this 800-mile trek himself. And he arrives in Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem, but he misses the Holy Family. They have already fled to Egypt. But he arrives and he's staying in the town there when Herod's soldiers come. And he spends his second jewel to bribe a guard who come, or a soldier who comes to the house to spare the life of the child in that house. Then he takes off for Egypt to search for the Holy Family. He looks all over the place there. He never finds him. He heads back. He searches all over Israel. He spends his decades searching. And he goes one more time back to Jerusalem, where he, 33 years later, ironically, and he ends up in Jerusalem for one more search. And he hears about a man who's being crucified with a sign above his head saying, King of the Jews. And so he hurries to find him. But along the way, he runs into kind of a group of guards dragging this woman to prison to sell her actually into slavery to pay her father's debts, who her father has died. And he takes time, pauses, and he spends his last jewel to buy her freedom. Right after that, there's an earthquake. A tile from a roof hits him on the head. He's laying there semi-conscious on the ground, and he has this dreamlike encounter with Jesus. And the woman he's just saved has... Uh, hears him having this, uh, saying this apology to Jesus, who he's having this encounter with. He apologizes for never having seen his face and failing to bring these jewels to him. And Jesus' response to him is, I say to you that inasmuch as you've done this to the least of my brethren, you've done this to me. Now, a little contrived story, but I think the point is a good one. The point of this story is that what we should do on our journey to see Jesus is to honor Jesus in what we do. If we are followers of Jesus, our journey should show it. Who we are seeking changes what our journey is like. I remember several years ago, we had a woman stand in the middle of this chancel and as a witness to the congregation shared her story here and asked for your help. She shared that the week before she'd been downtown at the Elephant Car Wash, having her car washed downtown. It was the middle of winter, and she remembered she, she saw this homeless man walk by without a coat. He looked just freezing. It was a very cold winter. And she remembered she had a coat in the back of her car. You see, she'd just broken up with her boyfriend a few weeks before and had his coat in the back of the car. And, <laughs> she didn't think he really needed it. So she gave it to the homeless man, and he walked away warm. And she thought, you know, I bet there are a lot of other people who have coats. And blankets. And so she came here and asked to be in front of our congregation. She shared that story. The congregation, of course, roared with laughter, giving her boyfriend's coat away, and asked us to bring extra coats we had and extra blankets we had. And so you responded. It filled an entire classroom with coats and blankets with your generosity and your response. She rented a truck and she took uh, load after load down to Union Gospel Mission, which were given away to homeless people in Seattle who didn't have coats and blankets. This is an act of a person on a Jesus-seeking journey. And your act in response was exactly the same thing. People seeking Jesus, the journey's different, isn't it? We act different on a journey when our destination is Jesus. We're told that the wise men were overwhelmed by joy when the star stopped and the search had come to an end. So I invite us all to join in that rejoicing We have found our Savior, and he has found us. 
Let us all bow down and worship the newborn king. And let us do this with all that we are and with all that we do. Lord, we seek you. We're on a journey to find you. But the surprise is that you find us. You have come all the way to us. You have taken the greatest journey of all. Lord, help our journey be different because you are the destination of our journey, our search, our hope. In your son's name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.